I feel like the Lord is saying he's about to bring a springtime and sunshine to your life. And I feel like some of you have been really living in a real fog. You've been living in a real dark place. You, you've almost been blinded and have no idea where you're going or what you're supposed to do. And that's what the Lord's been speaking to me. He said, son, as much as you're longing for the sunshine and the springtime to come, long for it in your life because I'm about to bring it to you. Have you ever been really, really full of anxiety? I'm talking like anxiety where you can never sit still. You can't take a nap. You can't even sleep because when you try to lay down, your mind is racing and you're restless or you're pacing back and forth throughout the house. You're going from the office to the kitchen to the bedroom, outside, inside, pacing around, and even your sleep at night is getting robbed. You ever felt that way, anybody? Just about 10 of us, okay. <laughs> but see, I've learned through going through a lot of anxiety over my life how to fight right. See, I feel like this last immediate season, I've been battling more anxiety in my own life than I have battled in a really, really long time. We've had some great years, but we've also had some real difficult times from sicknesses, hurricanes, loss of a child, to so many difficulties. And it's hard when your children are, are sick or your finances are uh, not doing so well and you're living paycheck to paycheck or you don't know when the answer is gonna come. And we find ourselves restless and anxious. And what I feel like the Lord's saying is that if you will really look to him and you'll trust him for his son to shine upon you, that springtime in your life is going to come. As long as you are breathing today, you have another chance. If you can hear my voice, you have another chance. And some of you today are in a really, really dark, difficult place. But there's always hope. And what I've learned is that when anxiety comes and difficulties come, I learned one really, really valuable lesson. Don't spin out. Because the natural tendency when you're anxious or worried or feel fearful is to run to the things of this world to find comfort. But nothing will satisfy. You, Facebook, Instagram, internet, food, alcohol, sex, drugs, nothing will satisfy. And you'll always find yourself looking for the next thing. That's why God wants us to be rested and to live our lives from a position of rest and trust, which is why Jesus is Lord. Let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. And so what I've learned is there's something that I really have to do. One, I need to make sure that I stay the course. Number two, sometimes I just hang on. You ever been to the spot where you're just hanging on? Okay, I liken it into going offshore fishing with six to eight foot waves. I've been out there in a boat with six to eight foot waves and I puked my guts out and I would do anything to get to land. Nine hours of pure misery. But even in that moment, what I've learned is just hang on because land is coming. That's why the scripture says, fight the good fight, not the bad fight. Some of you aren't even fighting. If I can just get you to surrender your water pistol for an AK-47 in the spirit, I'll be where I want you to be. You have got to stop fighting from a place of victim mentality and take hold of the promise of God, stand on it, and sometimes you just hang on. Lord, I don't know what's happening, and I'm the one that blew it. Just self-deprecate and own it. Because 
you'll see today God doesn't grant you what you deserve. But the challenge is, is many of you, when the going gets tough, you spin out. What you do is you fight, you bicker, and you run to the things of this world to find comfort that you will only find in the Lord. And I get it. It can be really, really extremely hard when things aren't going your way, can it? No job, no money. You're fighting, bickering, not getting along with people. You feel alone. It's easy to run to doobies and alcohol and girls and drugs and partying and vegging out on Netflix and and social media. It's easy to do those things. But what it cannot be easy to do is to praise God before your breakthrough comes. Oh, when you get that nice tax check, you're ready to worship, aren't you? Oh, praise God. Holla, you're walking out of H&R Block. Your CPA, you got a little jig in your step, and you're like, oh, yeah, baby. Yeah, Jesus, you are so good. God, I knew you'd come through. But just about a week before that, you were in the toilet doubting and questioning and spinning out. You see, I don't care how anointed you are and how much supernatural revelation you get. Solomon got incredible supernatural revelation, probably more than any of us have gotten in certain areas. And Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. But you see, Solomon also had 700 wives. Now, I don't know how one man can handle 700 wives, but apparently he did. And you have to understand that Solomon was out of the will of God. Because God had commanded long before David and Solomon that man was to only have one wife. And what we see is the spinning out ramifications of a man that doesn't honor God. Because I'll take a legacy for my kids and the generations more than the book of Song of Solomon or Proverbs. Because what I have today is greater than what he had then. Now I don't have to read about it. I can live it. Because Solomon would ultimately spin out and begin to let all those wives from all those lands around him infect him And instead of being honorable to the Lord, he would spin out and start worshiping the worst of the worst of the worst deity, human sacrifice deities. Is that all right? Hey, man, Lord, give me all the great. Oh, man, look at me. I'm a powerhouse while I spin out. He said, man, I want to be like Gideon, but I don't want my kids to end up like Gideon's kids. Because Gideon had incredible revelation, tore down the high places. Man, we know the story. Thousands of, of people slayed with water, broken water pitchers and torches from a dream, supernatural to the max. And at the end of Gideon's life, it says that Gideon's own kids did not serve the Lord. How's that for you? You like that? Because I don't. Because it's not about being the latest, greatest, coolest, hippest. It's not about how many followers. It's not about how popular. It's not about my latest, greatest revelation. It's about maturity and staying the course in the process of sanctification. It's about breaking carnality out of your life and we stop living like animals when we lay claim to Christianity. I don't want to spin out. And what I care the most about is that in the end, when I look back, I go, man, I stayed the course. And I heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't have to be anything more than a son that's rested in obedience and passes legacy and life down to my kids. I'll take that. 
And the challenge is for some of you, you're blinded and in darkness and you don't really even understand what in the world is happening and you don't know where you're going. Jesus wants us to know where we're going. And the way we know where we're going is by following him. But in Jesus' day, the people were blinded and did not have an understanding of who he was. So Jesus in Luke 23 is hanging on the cross. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says this. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I think to myself, how can anybody just like not know what they're doing? I mean, I think to myself from a practical standpoint, don't tell me you don't know what you're doing. And don't give me that I fell into sin thing. Because some of you do a nice double flip, swan, perfect spin, no splash right into the pool. There's no fall. I purposely made it awesome. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves, people. I've lived this life long enough. I have purposely made so many mistakes, willfully by my own choosing. But at the same time, the Lord says, forgive them for they know not what they do. So when Peter, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, the uneducated stutter that can't really speak very well, that didn't have any public speaking skills, stands up on, after Pentecost, falls. People are blasted by the Holy Spirit. Everybody's wondering, what in the world is this? And then he uses it as an occasion to rip the Jews and the people in Jerusalem to shreds. Here's what he says. You are the guilty one. You are the ones that denied him and put him on the cross. But I get it. You did it in ignorance. You were ignorant. Ignorance simply means that you didn't have any understanding. You didn't know. You see, the word for know actually is the exact Greek word to see. It's the Greek word idol. It's when Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus in the night. Nicodemus comes, visits with him, and says, Jesus, you are, I'll paraphrase, you are awesome. Man, you're awesome. Nobody could do what you're doing if they didn't. I mean, what you have done, the supernatural healings and feedings and everything you did, busting up demons, all those, men, Jesus, nobody could do what you're doing unless they came from God. And Jesus' response was, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Same word for no. So Jesus is on his way to Galilee. He sits down at the well. He's tired from his journey. Hot day, desert. Sits down, and here comes a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is full of shame and guilt and sin. She's had multiple husbands. The person she's living with and shacking up with is not her husband. She's in full-blown sin and shame. And here comes Jesus. And in the midst of her darkness and shame, Jesus looks at her and says, I want something from you. Jesus looks at the Samaritan woman and says, would you... Give me a drink of water. Jesus is asking for the great exchange. The great exchange is Isaiah 55. Come unto me, you who have no money. I know you're broke, busted, disgusted, and you bombed it to no end. But what I have to offer you, you can't buy. 
and it's wine, bread, and milk that really satisfies that's everlasting. Come and buy with money you don't have. So Jesus looks at the woman in the midst of her greatest darkness and shame and guilt and says, would you give me a drink of water? And the woman bows up. I mean, she really bows up. She's like, first of all, we're divided. She says, you're a Jew. You shouldn't even be talking to me. I'm a woman, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Don't you know that my family worships on that mountain, and your family worships on that mountain in Jerusalem? We are divided and bows up to repel and to push him back, which is what most people do when they're in shame. And Jesus says, huh, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink of water, he says, you would get the gift of God and you would get living water that never, ever causes you to thirst again. The gift of God is the Holy Spirit that fills you. Jesus saves you. The Spirit fills you. So you're never thirsty for the things of this world any longer. So what has made her dissatisfied with multiple husbands and shacking up in fornication and promiscuous promiscuity, now Jesus says, I got an answer for you. I'm going to show you how to resolve your situation. But the problem is, is you don't know. So if we go down a little bit further, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you worship gods that you don't know. And most people have no idea who they're really worshiping and what he really did on that cross. Most people are worshiping idols or their self or living for their own material gain and possessions. You know what the word idol means? I love this. You ever think of, if you ever think of the word idol, always remember this. The word idol means dumb. It means it doesn't talk. That little bitty baby Buddha in your house is not going to be talking to you. I'm just telling you right now. It's idolatry because it can't speak. You say, well, I'm not worshiping that. But the Lord requires something so much greater for us in how we live our lives. And if we're living for our own self and not for him, that is idolatry. Because whatever it is that we're going to try to speak to ourselves without the Holy Spirit, is never going to satisfy. The challenge is, is people can't see. So what he was really saying to the woman at the well is, if you could really see what was right before you, you would know and understand. And then you would ask me. The challenge is, is most people don't see, they don't understand. And the reason for that is in 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to show it to you in a little bit. I'm going to pull it up now. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, that people can't see where they're going because darkness has blinded them. And we're going to be moving into a new series here real soon titled Blind Mind. We're going to be dealing with mental health, depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia. We're going to deal with it from a spiritual standpoint. But you have to understand that darkness blinds people's eyes and maybe blinding your own eye And we'll have some identifiers here in a minute because what I want to do is push away the darkness so you can step into the light of who you are. That's what I want. So people are in darkness and they don't know and they don't understand because of ignorance. 
The word to know is simple. It means that I have now discerned and perceived and made up my mind that this is the truth. I now know because I have experienced with my senses and seen personally the truth of who he is. We're not on a Christian bandwagon doing our nice Sunday morning church service. We're called to live in so much more. And most churches won't preach hard against sin, and you guys should know, especially for the visitors, I'm one of the nicest pastors you'll ever meet. Like, I preach grace, mercy, love, the Father's love, identity, sonship. That's my main thing. But the problem is, is this house has division and sin and righteousness issues, and you've got to understand scripturally that God has called us to live differently than the world and called us up and out of it. And I'm not talking about being in process, because when I gave my life to Jesus, I was the biggest con man Christian you ever met. I mean, I came right out of the life of con man, drug dealer, right into Christianity. It's not like overnight, you don't get saved and start walking in the clouds with a halo on your head. Right? God's got a process. That's why we're patient. But if you've been coming here more than 90 days, if you have been a Christian for more than 90 days, you need to understand that God calls you out of the old self, the old life, into a new life. So those patterns and things you used to do are not okay now. Now all you have to do is have a yes and a desire in your heart. But some of you, like that double backflip off the dive board, are living that kind of secret hidden lifestyle. Oh, I know. Trust me, I know. And sometimes God opens my eyes to see. I don't go around beating you over the head with the Bible. This isn't that crazy, weird, Pentecostal holiness type church. But if I don't set the standard, this church can't go where it's going to go. You can't go where God's called you to go. If you're divided, envious, uh, hypocrite, and continuing to live contrary to God's plan, not only will you hold yourself back, but you will hold us back. Because we're building a house with a firm foundation. We can't even sustain revival. If revival came here, we would crack and fracture and break. There is a harvest waiting to come into this house. And as long as we're living divided, broken, and in secret sin, and you can't even get along with your roommate or your neighbor, and you don't like people, the Bible defines that as hatred towards one another. And the Bible says if you claim to know God but hate your brother, you are a liar. And the love of God ain't even in you. And I want you to be convicted today because today's the day of repentance. Today's the day that we break the fractured things in this house. And I'll keep doing it until God says you're healthy and whole because until we get unified, we can't go where God wants us to go. I've dreamt it. I heard it. I've seen it. So Jesus is on the cross. And while Jesus is dying, he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them in their most darkest, ignorant state. You see, ignorance and not knowing is where we get the word agnostic. The, Christ, the, the Greek word is actually agnoi, and it means agnostic. You know what agnostic means? It means you can't really see or I can't really know. 
So what we believe is, what agnostics believe is that God spun the world like a top. And he's not reaching his hand down. There's no divine intervention. There's no hearing God's voice. He gave you his word. You got the Bible. And if he's real, he's real. If he's not, he's not. He spun the world and bam, go for it. Some of you are living like Christian agnostics, which is an oxymoron. Not hearing God's voice. Don't know where God's at. Don't know what he's doing. And I'm not saying this to beat you up, but to call you out of it. Just self-deprecate and own it. I deal with it every single week. People spinning out, doing crazy stuff, not listening. I meet with them, and they're in crisis. They're like, you, any idea what God's? No, I, mean, I don't even know what God's. That's why I'm here with you. That's a Christian agnostic lifestyle. And you were never meant to live like that. Does it take time to, hear God, to learn how to hear God's voice? Yes. But what we're doing is instead of looking to him to learn and apply ourselves, we're running to the things of this world and we're going through our nice Christian motions. Don't be that person. I'm going to show it to you a little bit more. Agnostic means that you are morally blind. Because think about this. They could see Jesus, but they couldn't see him. Like some of you have ideas about Christianity. Some of you are here to search and seek it out and get in the process. We'll be insane. I probably have more patience than, I think I have a lot of patience. I really am like super forgiving and a lot of grace. You know why? Because I bombed it like a thousand times before. I've made more mistakes than I can even tell you. And God had mercy and grace and compassion. Did I blow a lot of things up? Did I delay my time? You bet. But I also saw the mercy and the grace of the Lord. So I know God's patient. I know he's kind. I know God will see you through. Because he's done it for me. But at the same time, darkness has some of your eyes blinded. Spiritually, you can't see. To be ignorant is to be morally blind. So the decision to crucify Christ was done from a place of moral blindness. Think about this. The people really didn't understand who Jesus was. One minute they loved him. Man, he fed me. He busted up demons out of my life. He healed me. I love Jesus. But the next minute he's riding on a donkey. And now the Pharisees have lied about him. The people picked up the poison. And now they're screaming, crucify him. Now, Luke 23, 21, they're saying, nail him to the cross. You know that there's people that actually believe today that it was God's justice to hang Jesus on the cross. Here's why. They believe this, and this is Torah teaching. Anybody that lays claim to be God or put themselves in that position. I mean, can you imagine if I said to you, I'm the Messiah? First of all, you should run for your life. <laughs> Rock City is over. <laughs> but you have to understand that what people were waiting for for thousands of years, here comes the real Messiah, but not as they thought he would be. And the culture was morally blind. They couldn't see. 
So anybody, I remember I went to Myrtle Beach a few years back. I was hanging out with Michael Miller from the upper room. And we went into one of those t-shirt shops that are like out on the island or out in Port A or in Key West or Myrtle Beach. We go into this t-shirt shop and most of them are owned by Jews. Just so that you know, they come to my coffee shop in Port Aransas all the time. I've built some great friendships with these guys. And I've had them say some really great, we've sat down and talked. They're like, listen, if David and Solomon could have 700 wives, so can we. I'm like, you are so jacked up. But we asked this guy in the t-shirt shop who was a Jew, uh, Michael and I were like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? I like to ask Jews what their perception. I just got back from Israel last year, had an incredible conversation with, with them. And this guy says, oh, yeah. He says, oh, G oh Jesus, yeah. I've heard about him. <laughs> he says he, was a, he really had some things going on from the Lord. He was, he was a, definitely a prophet, but he took it too far. He got prideful, and he started to believe that he was actually God. And, and we know that if somebody actually believes that they're God, it's heresy, and they are to be stoned or killed or crucified. So there are people today that actually believe that it was God's justice to crucify Jesus because he deserved it. Do you know that? In fact, in Isaiah 53, 4, it says that people would esteem him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You know what it means to esteem somebody? It means that, I've, that I have made up my mind and decided, I have determined or made the judgment call that what's happening to you, God's doing it to you. Oh, that's prevalent in our own culture right now. You get sick, you lose a loved one, oh, man, it's God's will. Really? That's not what my Bible says. So people would actually look at Jesus and say, look, God struck him. God smit him. God afflicted him. Those are important words because the word is, uh, stricken means to be struck down, crushed, defeated, and punished. That God struck him down, crushed him, and he was plagued. Some of you out of your own mouth, you say, I'm just plagued. I don't know what it is. I minister to outlaw bikers all the time. Many times their worlds are constantly spinning out with problem, 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 problem. And they'll say, God is just smitten me. He's striking me down. Or I'm plagued. Comes out of my, I'm just plagued. I don't know what it is. But the truth is, is that there's blinders from the enemy robbing you so that you can't see. And we're going to talk about that more. To be stricken is crushed down and plagued. To be smitten means to be scourged, beaten, chastised, judged, wounded, killed like a disease. The mindset was that Jesus was a disease. How many of you know what the word blighted means? It means to be infected with a disease, and it particularly involves plants. So if a plant gets a fungus or a mildew, that fungus, like I've had a fungus in my front yard. And so I had to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy fungus killer and spray my yard because my whole front yard turned yellow because it's infectious. And the mindset is that Jesus was blighted 
And what Jesus was doing was he was infecting everybody else around him. That's how people saw Jesus. And the scripture makes it clear that people would believe that God blighted him and afflicted him, which means to humble him and bring him low, that God brought him down. So basically, the premise is that God, that Jesus got what he deserved. Do you see that? People think and believe that Jesus got what he deserved and that we had nothing to do with it. Not only did people demonstrate this ignorance then, but they demonstrate it now. And we were all ignorant in our past lifestyles of sin. But how much more ignorant can we be when Jesus sets you free and you can see the cross? You see, Solomon, in all his splendor, never had the cross. He never had the bloodshed. There was the, the Messiah had not come. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit had not come. So the standard that God expects for us is even higher than the standard expected for them. Because back then, man, I got a day where I'm going to be forgiven. But the rest of the year, I'm going to live like a hellion. That's called the Day of Atonement. And many people believe, man, that one day I get wiped clean. So I got all the rest of the 364 days out of the year because God next year on that same day is going to forgive me. But it doesn't work like that now. The standard expected for you in righteousness is even higher than the standard expected for them. That's what I believe. Because think about it. If you really are flamed on for the Lord and you do just one little thing, you're like so convicted. It's like, how can I, Luis and I are talking about this, how can just one little thing, man, I just did one little thing, Lord. I mean, golly, and you had, he had 700 wives and I just did one little thing. And I'm so convicted because the standard of moral righteousness is the blood has been shed. The sacrifice has been made. The cross has happened. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin put Jesus on the cross. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. But most people don't have an understanding why. Do you know that? Most people don't. Like, man, Jesus died for your sins. Okay, why? Why in the world would a dad even kill his son? It's like people don't even understand. They're morally blind. Now, you should have an understanding. You should learn and read why Jesus had to die on that cross. But in case you forgot, I'm going to give you some examples. First of all, what people in the world see of Jesus is not what we should be seeing of Jesus. Because the scripture says that the natural man, this is 1 Corinthians 2.14, doesn't receive from the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man is the man without the spirit. But a carnal man is a Christian living like an animal. A carnal man, we should be breaking carnality out of our life so we can see Jesus for who he really was. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah 53, 2, it says this, that Jesus had no form, no comeliness, and I'll teach you that word in a moment, and that he had no beauty that we should desire him. Meaning, he didn't come in the way of royalty that the people expected. Because all those terms are royalty kingship terms. So they couldn't see the splendor. 
they couldn't see how stately. Form means he was not stately. Comeliness means that he had no splendor. And beauty means that what they saw in the natural with their natural man eye was not desirable. But when you're born again and your eyes get opened, now I see a stately king. And now I'm so attracted. Oh, man, so attracted to him. And some of you haven't gotten an accurate picture. You're still seeing Jesus as that lowly, obscure, afflicted one and taking that upon yourself. But Jesus is a king. And Jesus would make the decision to take our sin and bear it on the cross. We were the ones that put him on the cross. So instead of desiring him, if you don't see him right, and you can expect the world's not going to see what you see. It's like, if I go out to somebody that is not born again and lost, I'm like, man, let me tell you how beautiful Jesus is. I mean, he's like so stately and he's a king, he's so awesome. The natural man can't see that. But when they get born again, they can see it. But people that are living like natural men or mere men, what happens is, is they turn away from the Lord. They reject him and they despise him. It's Isaiah 53, 3. Or we hide our faces from him. To hide our face means that we're walking in shame. God doesn't want you to hide your face. He doesn't want you to reject him or despise him. But he wants you to understand a few important things. First, Jesus was, was an obscure, outwardly unimpressive person in a failed culture. If you read the scriptures in Isaiah 53, it says he was acquainted with grief and sorrow. He was full-time living in rejection. He didn't take it, but rejection was coming against him. He was acquainted with grief and sorrow throughout his life. Let me give you an example. Imagine if Andres was going to lay his life down for me. Now, if I said to all of you, hey, guys, look, Jesus wants us to lay our lives down for one another. You go, yeah, all right. That's kind of palatable, right? But if you really understood to the degree that Jesus laid his life down for you, it could look something like this. Andres is going to lay his life down for me. And he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for me because he loves me. But while he makes that decision or chooses to go to that cross to die for me, I'm spitting on him. I'm lying to him. And I say, you know what? Screw you, bro. Seriously, I'm going to go club it up. I'm going to party. I'm going to shack it up. And you just go to that cross. You take it from me. And when you take it, I'm going to make sure to make it as hard and miserable as it can possibly be. Because I don't even believe that you're who you are. I don't even believe that you can save me. And so you know what? I'm going to live it like there's no tomorrow. And so he goes to the cross, carrying his cross, gets there, gets nailed, gets hung, thorns stuck in his head, mocking and laughing, and I don't even care. And in fact, I said I was your friend, but I'm really not. And you know what? I'm not even going to go with you to the cross. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'll be partying. We'll see how that works out for you, bro. And you know what? While you're hanging on that cross, give me your jacket. Give me your best shirt. Give me your best pair of pants. Give me the best pair of shoes that you have. Because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sell it on eBay. I'm going to sell it on Amazon. I'm going I'm to gamble for it. 
I'm going to roll the dice, play roulette, or flip some cards for blackjack while you hang on that cross. Now, if you can understand and see it that way, it changes everything. You know what, dude? Give me your motorcycle. Give me your best stuff. And you just go ahead and live your nice life. Just go ahead and lay it down. And while you do that, I'm going to rip you to shreds on Facebook. And in fact, I'm going to attack your very income. I'm going to tell people how terrible of a person you are. I'm going to get on there. I'm going to be so divided against you. You think you're doing me a favor? I'm going to make it even worse for you. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he says, forgive them, Lord. That's how incredible that statement is. I am, it'd be like, it'd be like understanding David is so morally, he has no idea. And I know that he has hurt me. I know that he is, I mean, he doesn't have any facial hair, but imagine if I was ripping out his beard and I'm sticking crowns in. And we're so defensive. Let me just tell you all something, men. Until your wife starts ripping the hair out of your beard and sticking crowns in your head and you start shedding blood, you need to walk in mercy and forgiveness and love and grace. Because if Jesus could do it for his bride, you can do it for yours. We lay our lives down because without unity in the body of Christ, the standard that is expected for Christians in the body of Christ is extremely, extremely high. You'll get there. I'm not beating you up, but I'm challenging you. Because many of us are living in moral unrighteousness and we're fractured with each other. We're busy. We're focused on our own self. In fact, the scripture goes on to say that every man like sheep went astray and every man went about his own business while Jesus was on the cross. So the scenario that I just gave you of what Andres would do for me is exactly what Jesus did for you. It's exactly what Jesus did for you. We were the ones deserving of death. Do you know that? Jesus did nothing to deserve death. We are the ones that deserve death. And you need to recognize that. But you also have to recognize that in Psalm 103, verse 10, you got some good news. The good news is, is that God doesn't give you what you deserve. But some of you live your lives that if somebody does you wrong, oh man, you better not get on my bad side. You do not want to see the wrath of David Bendet. I will chew you up and spit you out. You get me into a corner and I will rip you to shreds. Don't get disrespectable. I may be a Christian, but your chin is still checkable. Some old gospel gangsters for you right there. Yeah, huh? I will... Some of you have this attitude, I'm going to knock you out. You do me wrong, I'll show you what it means to be done wrong. And that is a problem. That's not how Christians live, everybody. We're called to live different than that. We're called to love each other the way Jesus loved you. And we fight and we bicker and we're envious and we live hypocritically and the world is watching and then the enemy comes back around full seconds and says, oh, you're that rock, you go to Rock City. That's, oh yeah, we know you are representing well. But the truth is you're not representing me, you're not representing this house, and you're not representing Jesus. And we will be hindered until we get unified. I want signs and wonders and miracles in the supernatural. 
But if we live carnally, we will not be able to go where we're supposed to go. I'm firm today. Come back next week. I'll be really nice. (laughs) Probably not. So if Jesus could have so much grace and mercy for you, why can't you have it for the person sitting next to you or your family or your coworkers or anybody that tries to rip you a new one? Because the Bible says you're going to be persecuted and they're going to do it in the most worst, harsh way that's going to make you bow up and want to fight back. And next thing you know, you're going to be just like them and you'll be giving into the exact same thing that the enemy wanted you to give into. Because we can fight in new ways now. I see Jeremy face to face. Hey, bro, yeah, what's up? But I get home later, and I'm happy to get behind my keyboard and rip him a new one. Then he says, hey, dude, what's up, man? Yeah. And he's saying, wait a minute. Aren't you the guy that just slandered me online? It's pretentious. It's fake. It's not real Christianity. And you need to repent. Some of you need to repent. We're full of envy, anger, disagreement, divided, deceitful, full of evil intentions, hypocritical, slandering, and behaving like the world when we act like that. I'm not saying all y'all are like that. I'm just saying if you act like that, these are the definitions biblically of how you're living. I'll just show it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, I love this scripture. You know why? Because I really want to be wind-driven. The word spiritual is the word pneumatikos. It means the breath of God and driven prophetically. Paul says, I can't even talk to you prophetically. I can't even take you where I want to take you. I have to deal with you as carnal people. But just the chapter before, he says the natural man. I'm not talking about, I expect the world to act like the world, okay? Why would I expect the world to act like a Christian? But if you lay claim to Christ's name, you got to move out of carnality. Because carnality means you're living the way the rest of the animals are living. But you're called out. God created you differently than the animals. So he says, I really, like, check this out. I want signs and wonders and miracles and healing. You know what I want to do? I want to talk about prophecy. I want to talk about supernatural signs and wonders. I want to see people walk in this room and they just walk in the front doors and bam, they get healed. I want people to get filled with the Spirit while I talk. I want people, I want demons to roar out of this place, not the people, but the demons. I want to see incredible healings to this land. I'm talking where I want to go so incredible. But if you don't get unified, if you don't start laying down your self-will and start loving and trusting each other the way you're supposed to, even when they do you wrong, and I'm going to take it even further than what I'm saying now, we cannot go where we're supposed to go. I have fractured marriages in this church. And I don't think Rock City's that much different than every other church. I just think at a lot of other churches, not all, so I can clarify for anybody watching. I just think at a lot of other churches, it's like, hey, you're messed up? All right, bro, just keep on going. Oh, you're looking at porn? No problem. Just keep it up, man. Now, I will love people through porn because I always do because I overcame it. I believe you can. 
As long as you have a yes in your heart, I can work with you. But I'm not going to coddle your sin because the wages of sin will kill you. And I'm tired of seeing our kids, the generations, the sons and daughters. I don't want consequences for you because I will walk through it with you. And it hurts me when it hurts you. I don't get it. Maybe we don't read our Bibles. Maybe we're too focused in the worldly system of ourselves. But church, Rock City, and everyone watching online, if you lay claim to Christ's name, we're called so much higher. It's all right if you feel convicted. I'm not putting worldly sorrow on you. I'll put godly sorrow on you. And you know what godly sorrow does? Woo! It's party time. Because godly sorrow will lead you to say, oh, man, get your hands up. Is the Holy Ghost stick up. Because some of you have been living with a rob, you've been robbed your whole life. You've been told a bunch of nice, tickling ear, good messages, but you haven't come to the, cro- to the cross. <clears throat> Aren't you tired of getting robbed? You want nice, coddled American dream Christianity? The American dream is not God's dream. Right. What's maturity? It's sanctification. Maturity is coming to the place. See, my kids are immature. They're four and six. You know how much immaturity they have? It's crazy. They fight over the silliest things. And it's always about they have something that I don't have. Why did he get that and I didn't get that? Why does she have that and I don't have that? It doesn't matter what it is. If I bring a flower home for my daughter, my son will cry if I don't bring him a flower. And then as soon as I hand him the flower, he throws it on the floor and then walks all over it. He could really care less. What he really cared about is why did she get something that I didn't get? And don't think that the church is living that much different. In fact, look at verse 3. You're still carnal. For here's how you know. Here's the identifiers of carnality. Envy, strife, and division. If that's in us, we're living like mere men. But God's house, judgment has to come so that we can become a real family. This isn't, I may be being firm with you, but everything that I'm saying for you is the best thing for you, if you'll take it. I'm sorry if you came from ultra Pentecostal holiness, beat you over the head Bible, everything was legalistic, obedience, obedience, obedience. You have to have faith first. You have to discover your identity. You got to get rescued. But when you get rescued and you get some faith, Now you start saying, the man that I once was, the things that I used to do, the pot I used to smoke, the drinks I used to drink, the hookups I used to have, I don't want that anymore because that's not who I am. And if you had a yes in your heart, God can work with that. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this message. But God's calling his church higher today. God's calling his church higher today. 1 Peter 2.2 says, check this out. He says, I'm sorry, go back to verse 1 if you can. He says, to lay aside all envy, malice, hypocrisy, deceit, and anything that's in our lives that's division. Because he's saying it's carnal. Because the real identifier, look, hypocrisy, evil speaking, you have to think before you speak. 
Let me give you a really good definition. I've shared this with some of you. You know in the definition of love, one of the definitions of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is endurance. You know what the root word for endurance is? Bite your lip. Because many times you say things you shouldn't say even though you think it. You don't need to open your mouth and speak freely because out of the mouth comes life or death. It's one thing to think it, but it's another thing when it comes roaring out of your mouth. And many of you just have to learn to speak and act like Jesus does. And if you can just control your mouth and endure, you can endure it, everybody. No more evil speaking, hypocrisy, deceit. No more malice, which means to be angry and to be in disagreement. Oh, I know some of us are disagreeing with each other, but it's expected for believers to live differently than the world. It's expected that we would love like Jesus did. It's expected instead of tearing each other down, we would build each other up. It's expected that we would be united despite our differences and that we wouldn't gossip, slander one another. But if you are doing those things, you have to ask yourself why. So if you're feeling any conviction or you've been living contrary to God's best, slandering, hurting, whatever it is, being deceitful, hiding, you know, if you are letting your flesh get the best of you, more often than not, your flesh doesn't just hurt you. Is it because injustice has been done to you? We want to live the V for vendetta life. Oh, I'll, you mess with me, you mess with the wrong guy. I'll show you how it feels. That's not Christianity. Is it because we actually don't want to deny ourselves? Maybe you just really don't want to deny yourself. Maybe you enjoy the gratitude and satisfaction that comes when somebody else pays the price. Like somebody leaves this church and blows it up on their way, and I'm praying, God, blow up their house. Teach them how erroneous they are. Oh, you're going to do me wrong? I've done all this stuff for you? Oh, boy. You are going to, man, fire is going to rain down from heaven on you. That's dysfunction. That's not kingdom. Jesus didn't give you what you deserved. You don't pay somebody back for what they did to you. But you don't understand. They're wrecking my business. They're wrecking, they're lying. They're slandering. It's illegal. I'm going to sue them. The Bible says if you let Jesus or God handle it, you actually give place to his wrath. And what we actually should do is pray for our enemies and those that spitefully use you. That's what Jesus said. Maybe it's because we don't want to live the biblical standard of denying ourselves of the sin and fleshly pleasures the world gives us. It's easy to click on porn. I mean, it's easy. And parents, if your kids have a cell phone, you better have it on lockdown, and you better have trackers on it, and you better know where they're going and what they're doing. Even if they have iPads and you think yeah, YouTube Kids is safe, trust me, it's not safe. Don't think, oh, my little Johnny, he'd never do that. Next thing you know, your 10-year-old, you bust your 10-year-old looking at porn. You got to lock it down. You got to be diligent. You got to be wise. And you got to shut the flesh down. Shut the flesh down. Let's say it together. You ready? Shut the flesh down. 
Jesus said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, let him do three things and do them all together. It's not a, not a formula. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. It's not okay to keep shacking up out of marriage. You're setting a terrible example for kids. So if you're shacking up with someone, repent, either get out of the relationship, or if you've been together for a long time and you think you love each other, come and see one of us, and we, we may consider marrying you. But I don't tell people, oh, you got a baby, you've been living together and sleeping together, you need to get married. That's dysfunction. That's old school religion right there. Because you don't even know that those two people are compatible. Next thing you know, 20 years, 10 years, 20 years later, they got married because they got pregnant. And now they're divorcing. Get help. Let somebody speak into your life. Make the decision to live upright. That's what Mark and Tina did. That's what Oscar and Vanessa did. That's what Reuben and Chelsea's about to do. Because you better believe if we're doing things right, people are going to come into this church shacking up, coming right out of the club. Praise God. That's what we should be doing. So if some, you know somebody's living together, please do not go up and tell them, you're in sin, you need to get married. Just let me handle it from the pulpit. Or let mamas and papas, we're very caring and loved. We don't want anybody to run away. We want to call, draw them up the mountain into the moor. Some of us are just flat out double-minded. You're lying. You're living in sin. You're sleeping with who knows who. You're sneaking out for some food at night. Next thing you know, it's like, bam, I ain't coming back. Let's hook it up, baby. It's funny, but it's true. Look at what the scripture says in the book of James. Read it to you from the Passion Translation, James chapter 1, verse 7. When you're half-hearted and wavering, guess what it does? You live like a seesaw. Back and forth, up and down, up and down. It's double-minded. If you live half-hearted, you're actually unstable can you really expect to get anything from God? It's a rhetorical question. Oh, Jesus, bless me while I'm rocking it with you-know-who on the side. Sometimes you got to have straight talk in God's house, everybody. I love you. But I'm just telling you, Rock City is on a mission. This is not nice, comfy social club. I'm not laying my life down and signing my name on a line for $2.8 million to have a nice, feel-good social club church. You are messing with my life when you mess around. Maybe it's because we don't like to be told what to do. How many of you like to be told what to do? Some of you are like, I, I only listen to Jesus. I don't need you to tell me what to do. You are out of the will of God. You know that? Oh, gee. Now, I know some of you are bowing up right now. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. If my leaders and, and I are living upright and pursuing the Lord with everything in us, and we're not, we have no selfish gain, nobody's checked out on porn, we're all giving and loving and serving properly, is it okay to say, imitate our life? 
In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You say, I am not following any man because the last time I followed a man, I got robbed. But what if there was no robbery taking place? What if it really was everything we ever could hope and dream for? Now, I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm not sneaking around, lusting around, checking around, stealing your money, hiding. I'm in this as much as anybody's in it. And I have a wife that seriously God knew I needed because she's firm, she's confident, and sometimes just a little bit too stubborn. And I am too. But you live your life out loud, everybody. And you listen. Some of us are so, you know what, how God defined that in the Old Testament? Stiff necked. You know what stiff necked is? It means that the head cannot turn your neck. Have you ever had a bad crick in your neck? Some of us are a little older. All you young adults, probably not yet. And I pray you never get one. But I, the worst thing is when you slept wrong on your neck, and now you can't move your head. It's called stiff neck. Spiritually, what it means is that I'm stubborn, I'm difficult, and I'm obstinate. How many of you know what the meaning of obstinate is? Well, in case you don't, like most of us, let me give you a great definition. Stubbornly refusing to change your opinion or chosen course of action despite every attempt to advise and persuade you otherwise. Pastor Marlene wants to meet with you because you've been manifesting on Facebook. You're not having it. I come to you and say, listen, the way that you're living is not kingdom, and I'm going to correct you. And you say, nobody's correcting me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That is unbiblical and out of the will of God. But biblically, we need healthy kingdom government that loves like Jesus loved. I know that's hard, hard for some of you. But listen, I, I'm going to always, always believe the best for you and pray for you. And I know that I may not be perfect. But if I'm going to give you advice, sometimes I'm going to tell you, look, I'm going to always try my best to not have to tell you what to do. Instead, what I want to do is get you to self-realize. That's a much better way, right? So I've learned to ask questions, help you understand. I hope you can self-realize today. But some of us are obstinate, and we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. And so when it comes time for the meeting or it comes time for the call, and you've been just living like the devil, and suddenly here comes, here comes the Calvary Church to the rescue, say, dude, we're picking you. We need a meeting. And then you just hide. So I don't want anything to do with it. If we're going to do things the right way, then we've got to do it God's way. And God's way is he puts kingdom government in position. In Deuteronomy 28, we are given two sections in Deuteronomy 28. One of the sections is the blessings for obedience, and one of them is the curse of disobedience. Now, nobody wants to really come to church on a Sunday like today and hear bad news, right? The challenge is, is that people are saved by the contrast. 
And if we don't preach truth and we just tell you everything's going to be all right, and it's not because God says biblically, if we are not hearing his voice and being disobedient, we got a problem. Do you know all of Deuteronomy revolves around being blessed or cursed? Deuteronomy 28. And here's what the premise is. If you hear his voice and obey his commandments, you will be blessed. If you do not hear his voice and disobey, you will be cursed. That's hard. We got Jesus. There's grace. Guys, come on. I got a lot of grace for you. So does Jesus. He died on the cross. He's in process. You're here. Thank God. But what I want you to understand is one of the ones in Deuteronomy 28, 23 talks about brass heavens and an iron earth. You know how I interpret a brass heaven or a bronze heaven and an iron earth? Life is so hard. Man, everything's so difficult. I'm not hearing God's voice. Nine out of ten, almost ten out of ten times when somebody blows up or manifests and I finally get to them, I'm like, do you hear God's voice? And they're like, I don't know what God's saying. So I'm saying, all right, let's get you to a place where you can hear God's voice. But the consequences of disobedience are not pretty. I don't want that for any of you. I want you to be to walk in full-scale blessing and obedience by hearing God's voice. And I came from super crazy religious Pentecostal churches that beat me up all the time with obedience, obedience, obedience. But you can't walk in obedience until you get born again and get some faith activated in your life. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 in the Passion Translation. The cravings of the self-life are obvious. Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, pornography. Chasing after things instead of chasing after God. Now you ask yourself if you're doing those things. We're going to pray for you today. We're not going to leave you hanging today. We're going to take you to a place of repentance and salvation. It's all right. Okay, I'm not giving up on any of you. Chasing after things instead of God, manipulating others, hatred of those who get in your way, senseless arguments, resentment when others are favored, temper tantrums, angry quarrels, only thinking of yourself, being in love with your own opinions. <clears throat> Scripture makes it very clear in verse 21 that when we're envious of the blessings of others, we actually walk in a murderous, uncontrolling spirit we have addictions, wild parties, and other similar behavior. And then he makes it clear that those who use their freedom for these things will not inherit the kingdom realm of God. 1 John 2, 3, and 6. Here's how you can know that you know God. If we're doing what he says. Now, if you're bombing it or blowing it up or messing it up, the good news is you can repent and forgiveness is bam. It's bam. That's how fast forgiveness is. If you can hear my voice and are breathing, forgiveness is yours for the taking. Just take it. That's what repentance is. If you say, I know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. If you keep his word, the love of God is actually perfected in you. Have you ever heard the scripture, perfect love casts out all fear? All right. Well, how can God's love be perfected in you so that fear can be driven out? It happens by keeping his word. Because when I'm not keeping his word, if I start clicking around, hooking up, lying, cheating, stealing, or treating my wife improperly, guess what happens? I start to walk in fear. 
So I learned to re repent quickly. Verse 6 says, if we abide in him, if we say we're abiding in him, we ought to walk the way that he walks. Verse 9, if he who says he's in the light and hates his brothers in the darkness until now, or is in darkness. Now, most of you wouldn't say you hate anybody, right? I mean, really. I mean, you might have some enemies, and if you have full-scale hatred, you need, to, you need to repent of that. But most of us, if I said, how many of you really hate somebody? He's like, I'm not a hater. Hater's going to hate. I don't hate anybody. Right? So I thought I'd have a fun little uh, teaching for you. Here are the synonyms from a thesaurus on hate. You ready? Extremely dislike. I don't hate you. I just extremely dislike you. How about this one? I don't hate you, but I'm just irritated by you. You irritate me. So that doesn't sound like hatred. Synonyms of hate, everybody. How about this one? You're a nuisance to me. Or here's the really, you can, you can take this one. I'm bothered by it. You bother me. The Bible says that is the type of hate we shouldn't have. So you don't understand. I, somebody show me in the Bible where it says, I have to love everybody, but I don't have to like you. Can anybody please give me a scripture? Now, I get it. You're not going to like everybody. But my point is, is a lot of times we're irritated, annoyed, or bothered by somebody, and we didn't even take it to Jesus. And sometimes the Lord put that person in your life to refine you, and it's a test. All right. And I will conclude now with this. Verse 11. I like the passage translation. I'm going to show you this one. It says, if you hate your brother, you're in darkness, and you're walking darkness, and you don't know where you're going because the darkness has blinded your eye, your eyes. The passion says you'll stumble around. So I'm going to show you just to remind you what real darkness is like and give you an example. And we're going to turn the lights off in the sanctuary so nobody move and nobody will get hurt. Just sit still. It's going to be all right. You ready? One, two, three. Imagine if you all scrambled around as fast as you could to get out of here and you had to run from one side of the sanctuary to the other. Imagine if you were trying to find a loved one in one corner and you were in the other corner. Let's turn the lights back on. Now, your eyes would get adjusted because there's some light in here. But if it was pitch black, you can't see where you're going. You're stumbling. That's what it means to not know because darkness blinds your eyes. Look at the scripture. If you're walking in hatred and division and envy and strife towards one another, you, the Bible says we actually have darkness in our life. So we're going to get darkness out. How does darkness come out? First, recognize that you got it and that you've been blind and deceived. Next, ask yourself, Lord, ask yourself, how can I love this person the way Jesus did? Lord, show me how to love. That's a great thing. I pray that a lot for my wife. Lord, show, she does too. Jesus, help me. <clears throat> are you keeping his commandments or are you being tormented by fear? Are you abiding, hence walking as Jesus did? Do you think you're in the light while you hate your brother? If so, we're really in darkness. 
How you love one another and our obedience is the ultimate test to where we stand in light or darkness. And if you feel lost and don't know where you're going, maybe there's some darkness that needs to be driven away. And here's how the darkness gets driven away. Matthew 3, 2 says, the first message John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is now. Mark 1, 14 through 15, Jesus' first message was, go to verse 15, the kingdom of God, he preached the kingdom of God, and he said, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand, do what? Repent. To repent means I'm, I'm convinced that I need to change the way that I'm living and thinking and believing in my head, in my life, my life, and my actions. Scripture goes on to talk about how on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, when the people were cut to the heart, repent. Be baptized and receive the gift of God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is so important. Turn, repent, say, look, I blew it and I bombed it. You know, the Bible says if somebody does you wrong, you're to go to that person face-to-face, quietly and privately, and try to have a conversation. If they won't have a conversation with you, then bring a couple witnesses. If they won't talk to you, then you come to the church. But the problem is we're duking it out all the wrong ways. We're divided on Facebook. We're divided on social media. We're divided in our groups. Not all of us. This church, there's a lot of hope for this church. But we're, we're going to another level of standard, amen? So to repent means, God, I blew it, and I'm going to change the way that I think and act and live, and I want everything you have for me. Let's all stand.